Hi, I'm Hallie Ritsu. And I'm Allison Friedman. And we're the hosts of Personal Jurisdiction, a podcast geared towards helping law students and lawyers explore the variety of career paths available to JDs. And my name is Jonah Perlin, and I'm the host of the How I Lawyer podcast, which is a podcast that interviews lawyers from across the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. This month, May 2022, our podcasts are joining together to feature interviews that focus on a key topic facing our profession, mental health. Although it's not talked about nearly enough, lawyers have long faced serious mental health challenges. And in many instances, these challenges begin during law school and increase throughout lawyers' careers. And the COVID-19 pandemic has amplified these challenges in ways that we're only now just learning about. We are obviously not mental health professionals, nor are we able to solve these problems. That said, we're hoping to use our podcast platforms to connect you, our listeners, to lawyers who have thought deeply about these topics and in some cases have gone through their own challenges too. We hope you learn from these interviews and that they can further destigmatize the conversation about mental health in the legal profession and maybe even provide you with some tools and inspiration in your own journey. So this month, no matter which of our podcast feeds you listen to, you'll hear the same series of interviews centered on this important topic of mental health. So for example, How I Lawyer listeners, you'll get a chance to hear interviews hosted by my friends from Personal Jurisdiction. And Personal Jurisdiction listeners will get to hear some interviews that I hosted. Also, just a heads up that next month, both shows will return to their regularly scheduled programming. We hope you enjoy and gain something from these interviews, and we hope you'll interact with us on social media, including on Twitter, where you can find us at PersonalJXPod. And you can find me at Jonah Perlin. You can also subscribe to our shows wherever you get your podcasts or on LinkedIn. And a quick word of thanks to Law Pods for editing and engineering this introduction and the How I Lawyer-based episodes. And thanks to you for listening. In this episode, Brian shares his powerful personal story. Please be aware, however, that this story includes topics that some may find disturbing, including eating disorders, drug and alcohol abuse, and suicide. Hello and welcome back. In today's special Mental Health Month episode, I'm excited to welcome Brian Cuban. Brian's a Dallas-based attorney, keynote speaker, writer, and addiction recovery advocate. Brian has been in long-term recovery from alcohol, cocaine, and bulimia since April of 2007. He's a graduate of Penn State University, Go Nittany Lions, and the University of Pittsburgh School of Law, Go Panthers, where the Law School Wellness Fund is named after him and where he spoke as the 2021 commencement speaker. Brian is well-known and speaks across the country at law schools and law firms, both to tell a story and offer advice on how our profession can better improve mental health awareness, awareness of substance abuse problems, and building more compassionate communities. He's the author of three books, Shatter Image and the Addicted Lawyer, and most recently, his debut novel, The Ambulance Chaser. If you haven't read it yet, go out and get it. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Fantastic. Well, look, you've been incredibly gracious telling your personal story, which I know is not always easy to audiences around the country and around the world. But for someone who's unfamiliar with your story, I was hoping we could sort of start with that and start at the beginning in your life, even before you decided to practice law. Absolutely. To give the Reader's Digest, I'm a, as you said, I'm a, uh, I'm a lawyer, though I no longer practice, though I still have my license in Texas, uh, not for lack of trying to uh, give it away <laughs> during my struggles with drugs and alcohol. But uh, yeah, I'm in, I'm in long-term recovery from cocaine, alcohol, and uh, an eating disorder. Believe me, yes, guys do get eating disorders. About uh, up to half of all those with eating disorders are male, although only one in 10 will seek treatment because it's such Mm -hmm. a a stigmatized and shameful and quote unquote female thing that people kind of stereotype it. And my uh, journey has been more than that. In addition to those, uh, two trips to a psychiatric hospital, the first in the summer of 2005, after a near suicide attempt, uh, we can talk about that. Uh, Three failed marriages, one more, I get a free set of steak knives, Mm -hmm. and then... uh, all from drug failing as in relation to drugs and alcohol, jail, you know, the mandatory DWI arrest for those of us who struggle. And uh, finally, I began my recovery journey Easter weekend, 2007. Hmm. So I just had uh, 15 years, April 8th. Wow. And all that while trying to practice law and yeah. maintain a uh, ethical practice and a uh, good practice, which is very difficult when you're struggling with those things. And it has a high correlation uh, with unethical behavior and disciplinary violations. And if you doubt me, take a look at the back of any bar journal, right? The quote unquote pages of shame, which I hate that moniker because it should, addiction shouldn't be a, a shameful thing, but 
Right. You know, the back of all bar journals, the Texas Bar Journal, you have the list of people, right? Mm-hmm. You know, on, sometimes on the Texas Supreme Court or the Supreme Court website who have been disciplined, suspended, disbarred, and a high percentage of those will correlate to some type of mental health issue, predominantly drugs and alcohol. Yeah. And I always like to start these interviews, no matter who I'm talking with, before they ever sort of even think about becoming a lawyer. So I'd love to hear a little bit about sort of your background, your upbringing, and also both how that ties into your the story, sort of the, the Cliff's Notes that you just gave, but also your story of why you decided to become a lawyer in the first place. Sure. Well, to understand that, we have to understand all of the snapshots in my life that start from the moment I popped out till uh, sitting here talking to you. Right. We're, we're basically an accumulation of snapshots, right? like whether it's trauma, pleasure, joy, pain. Hmm. And most people can remember moments, whatever they are. Absolutely. So to understand my snapshots, we have to take the hot tub time machine back to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the baby boomer era back when cell phones were two cups attached to a string and network social networking was playing kickball and dodgeball on the basketball court. <laughs> Right. I was the middle of three boys. I am the middle of three boys. We're all still alive. People know my older brother, Mark, from Shark Tank and uh, the Mavericks. He owns the Dallas Mavericks. And I have a younger brother, Jeff. Mark is the oldest as the firstborn, was what you might expect. He was outgoing, selling this door to door, selling that door to door. I remember when our local printers, our printers shut down, both the newspapers also shut down because it was a printer strike. He and his buddies, barely old enough to drive, uh, went out to Cleveland, Ohio about a 200-mile drive from Pittsburgh where they bought the Cleveland Plain Dealer, about 200 of them, and drove them back to Pittsburgh and sold them on a street corner at rush hour in downtown Pittsburgh for twice what they paid for. So he kind of knew what he was going to be. Yeah. My younger brother, Jeff, was a nationally ranked wrestler, a jock, the beer parties, good-looking kids, the dates, the proms, you know, the football games on Friday night, all the things that I associated with love and acceptance. I was classic middle child syndrome. I was shy. I was withdrawn. And I internalized anything negative said about me and wore it as kind of who I was, like a skin-tight suit. And unfortunately, I also had a difficult relationship with my mom, Jonah. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about this, but I want to make it clear to everyone listening to your podcast that I do not blame my parents, my mother, or anybody for what I went through. Parents do not cause addiction. Parents do not cause eating disorders. As all of your listeners, I'm sure, know there is a difference between cause and correlation. But things that can happen at home, that happen at home, can correlate with mental health issues later in life. Will happen to some, won't happen to others who go through the same thing. That's why it's correlation and not cause. There was a lot of fat shaming in my household. I used to come home from school and I would go to the kitchen and I would open the wooden cupboard and pull out the Chef Boyardee ravioli, the cans, Mm -hmm. beefaroni, SpaghettiOs. I loved it. Take out the old can opener. This was before before the electric can openers, and eh, 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 go around the metal. <laughs> right, didn't, right. Didn't own a microwave, but didn't heat it up. Went into the wedding, got a spoon, and just dug in. And my mom sometimes came home from selling real estate, walk into the kitchen, and would scold me. She said, Brian, if you keep eating that way, you're going to be a fat pig. Now, these were the things my mother's mother said to her. These were the things I'm sure my great-grandmother said to my grandmother. I come from an Eastern European Jewish family. My grandmother was from uh, Lithuania, very poor, very dysfunctional relationship around food that she brought to the U.S. The same story through Ellis Island, boom, boom, boom. And so that created a, a difficult relationship in my mom's house with food. And my grandmother was a diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic. And my mother had a very mentally and verbally abusive relationship with her. Mm-hmm. And this kind of runs downhill, and especially in the 70s when a young woman uh, in your 20s, my mom was in her 20s, going through her her own mental health issues at a time when a woman talking about, a mother talking about taking a drink or needing the pill or anything like that, needing that pill to calm down, you could risk losing your children. Yeah. So you just didn't talk about it. Right, different world. And not understanding this, uh, hadn't taken Psych 101 yet, that it runs downhill, and I was the one at home because I tended to isolate, I grew depressed hearing these things and started eating more Chef Boyardee and more Chef Boyardee, and I became a bigger Brian trending towards obese. And as so often happens, Jonah, when 
kids change for what other kids perceive in the negative at school, high school, junior high, grade school, middle school. The bullying started. The fat conning, the fat teasing, Brian, you need to go to Sears and get a bra for your man boobs. Brian, you're a fat pig when you must have talked to my mother. And uh, I kind of became the sad clown. I put up this wall of self-deprecation. Yeah, I'm headed to Sears right now. Yeah, I'm going to let it out, let the belt loop out. So the kids wouldn't know how much it hurt me. Because in those days, going viral meant 15 kids in the lunchroom knew about it. Much yeah. different than today, right? Where it's a much more insidious and uh, very damaging form of uh, going viral. But it didn't sure. hurt any differently. You're a product of your times. Right. And so uh, I, I self-deprecated. But in my mind, Jonah, these kids who were doing these things to me, saying these words were the prom queens, the prom queens, the kids who were getting their first date, getting their first kiss. The kids who were holding hands with their first girlfriend walking down the hallway between the lockers, going to the concerts together, getting invited Mm -hmm. to the after-school party while the parents were out of town. All the things that I wanted so badly but was afraid to ask because in my mind they're going to say, why would we let a fat pig be Mm -hmm. one of us? And so this all culminated in one day when I'm walking home from school and I call it the day of the gold pants. My brother Mark had given me a pair of shiny gold bell-bottom disco pants. A lot of your listeners may not remember Saturday Night Fever. They're younger. If they're younger, with John Travolta in the uh, mid-'70s, the beginning of the disco era, my freshman year in high school, 1976, when it was going Donna Summer and all of those, and Flashdance, the movie would come out in 83, but disco. Right. Mark- my older brother taught disco, believe it or not, at this club wow. downtown, and he always had the pair. He always was bringing home the skin-tight pants, the satin pants, the bell-bottoms, the platform shoes. I know. What wow. an image. Wow, wow. And he decided that I guess he had worn these, this pair of pants enough, and he gave them to me, a pair of shiny gold bell-bottom disco pants. And I love my brother, and I was like, great. And I wore the pants, but Mark wasn't a big guy. I had to jump up and down, spray the water bottle. My butt looked like 15 cats trying to get out. But I didn't care because I love my brother. We're very close and I wore them to school. And as you might imagine, the kids taunted me and made fun Mm -hmm. of me. But I just kept wearing them. I'm walking home from school one day with a group of these kids wearing my shiny gold bell-bottom disco pants. And again, these were the popular kids, kids kids that I like to tell myself were my friends, right? Mm-hmm. And I kept thinking that if I hung around on the outside of this little clique, one day it would be like a fraternity hazing. The taunts would stop, wrap their arm around me and say, yeah, kid, you're one of us now. But that's not how bullying works. We're about a mile from my house. I'm wearing the pants. They start making fun of them. And one kid reaches out and pulls at the zipper and they tear. Mm-hmm. Another kid goes, ooh, reaches out and pulls again. And it tears some more. The next thing I know, they're on me physically assaulted me, ripped off my pants, tore them into shreds, down to my Fruit of the Loom tidy whities my Keds shoes, my Keds tennis shoes, my three-ring tube socks, and my Pittsburgh Pirates t-shirt, and threw them out in the street, a busy street, cars whizzing by, walked down the sidewalk like they had done the funniest thing ever, high-fiving each other, looking back and laughing, and <laughs> look at the fat pig. I walked out in the street, waited for a gap in the cars, bent over, picked up the shreds, and Went back to the sidewalk and waddled home. Cars whizzing past, people gawking, no one stopped. I got home and it was funeral quiet. The house was empty. And I went down into our basement. And I remember it was these, the the stairs creaked, these wooden stairs creaked with each step. And I'm still in my underwear carrying these shreds. And with each creak of each stair, I felt like it reverberated throughout the community. It reverberated throughout the city, throughout the high school, where everyone knew my shame, to my father at work, to my mother, to my brothers. And I found a wastebasket. I pulled aside the newspapers and the Chef Boyardee cans and shoved the threads of my pants, the shreds, underneath them, trying to bury my shame, hoping I would forget my shame. And that was my one of my earliest snapshots of trauma that I remember in my life. And unfortunately, trauma doesn't forget. Trauma threads, trauma remembers, and trauma has a way of coming out when you least expect it, even when you think you've forgotten. And if you yeah. want to know how traumatic that snapshot was, I could take you to that spot in Pittsburgh, PA, 
the suburb of Mount Lebanon, nine miles south, and show you exactly where it happened within inches. Wow. That is, yeah. and, and it was right around then that I remember for the first time looking in a classroom mirror at my reflection, looking in my bathroom mirror, and starting to see or feel like I had just this huge, huge stomach, that I was just this unlovable fat pig, unlovable by his mother, by my mother, but she did love me dearly. My mother loved right. me with every bone in her body. She was just dealing with her own mental health issues, um, who would never get married, never have a girlfriend, and wasn't worthy of love by anyone. That's really kind of the start of it. Wow. It's amazing how vivid that memory is all these years later. It's powerful. It's it's just vivid. That's the best thing I can say about it, or the, the most accurate thing I can say about it. And I imagine that snapshot led into future snapshots, but it doesn't mean that that snapshot ever went away. In fact, it's sort of, there's a cumulative aspect to it, I imagine, as well. And you go through life, and people ask me, did you always remember that? Well, I didn't go through life remembering every second of every day that this happened to me, right? Right, right, You have right, triggers, right. and things bring it up. Yeah. So as you might imagine, I was pretty, I was pretty happy to get out of Pittsburgh, PA. I was going to mm. go away to college, and it was going to be a whole new Brian. I'd make friends. Everything was going to be different. So I went on to Penn State University. It was the, my first day at Penn State. It was I was in my dorm. My father had driven me up. And it was this cool day in the mid-40s, maybe, maybe going towards 50, and leaves are following, central Pennsylvania. And, uh, and my father's helping me unpack. And I'm looking out in the parking lot of this long rectangular window of people unpacking. Their parents are out there. They're chatting. And I make eye contact with this curly brown-haired girl. She looks at me. I look down because I, I immediately broke eye contact and right, I start sweating. Right, right. Yeah, right. And I imagine my entire life with this girl. Okay, things are great. I'm going to get, I'm going to, we're going to date. I'm going to get married and we're going to have two and one half children. Right. And uh, I look back up to her, at her, and we lock eyes again. And I have that horrifying realization in my gut that it wasn't a smile, it was a smirk. Hmm. She didn't say a word for a second. She looked at her two friends. She looked back at me, put her hands around her mouth in that megaphone hand position where you circle your hands with your mouth, mm -hmm. where you circle your mouth with your hands, and yelled twice, ugly, ugly. Now, Jonah, I'm not the first guy, kid, to have nasty things said to him. It happens all the time. Another kid may have yelled ugly back. Another kid may have flipped her off. Another kid may have done this. Another kid may have done that, right? Uh, we all respond based on our genetic, environmental, and social programming. And one more time, I don't blame this girl any more than I blame my parents. Right. But... I already felt ugly. And I remember thinking, she's right. I am. Hmm. And my whole world is out of control. And I will always be ugly. I'm only 17 going on 18 years old. And my whole world's out of control already. What do I have control over? What? Food. Yeah. That's it. But I associated eating more with bullying. So I decided my path to not being ugly, that girl's acceptance, my mother's acceptance, everyone's acceptance, the bully's acceptance... And my path to popularity and peer acceptance was to lose weight. And then I would no longer be ugly. So I began to restrict my food intake and restrict. I began to starve myself. And I quickly transitioned into binging and purging. In the, in, uh, the fall of 1989 or 1979, before uh, the singer Karen Carpenter passed away, for those who do not know who the Carpenters are, Looked them up, a wonderful group, and mm -hmm. bringing uh, passed away from complications related to anorexia and bringing digital eating disorders into the pre digital national spotlight. Right. But kind of cementing them as a female disorder. Four years before that, I was a guy with an eating disorder hmm. bulimia. Yeah. And do you think all of this is made, you know, you sort of mentioned it that it's a little different now in the digital age. Is it made it even harder for today's high school and college and sort of? younger folks because everything is so online and Instagram and TikTok and everything else? Absolutely. That's a great question. I like to talk about it in terms of normative discontent. Everyone looks in the mirror at some time or another and says that sucks, right? That's just part of the civil, that's part of the industrialized world. Right. I mean, we're, we're all just programmed that way and having a, you know, feeling a little heavy, having a bad hair day for me, that's all the time. But <laughs> as, as I lose my hair in my sixties, but, uh, so what has happened is, I think in the digital world, and, that, and that's normal, what happens is when it's, 
goes beyond normative discontent is when it triggers us into unhealthy behaviors, eating disorders, disordered yeah. eating, body dysmorphic disorder, dis body dysmorphia. And the, the set point of normative discontent, in my opinion, has been lowered. So it has been, we, it has been much easier in the digital age nowadays for someone to feel more poorly about themselves and right. take more drastic actions to not feel that way, if that makes sense. No, it does make sense. And it's something I think about. I mean, I have two young kids and I think about this all the time that the world they're going to grow up in and the mistakes they're going to be made, they are naturally going to make because their kids are, are going to be so much more, potentially so much more public than even the mistakes that I made as a kid. Absolutely. But you know, what I try to keep in perspective too, and for parents is that we're all, pro again, we're products of our times, right? Right. You can't rip away the internet and social media and all that. So what do you have control over as a parent? What does a parent have control over? You can't control everything your child does. They're going to be, they're going to see the images. They want to look like that. You can control what comes out of your mouth hmm. and how you portray that to your kids, how you talk about that with your kids, how you talk about yourself with your kids. That is what you have control over. Yeah. Because you really don't over everything else. Right. As I said, my, you know, my oldest is not even seven years old, but I already see what she sees in the world. And you're right. You're absolutely right. right. That and you can't control how, uh, how that's processed, right? Right, right. And, you know, these are going to be kids who also are a product of their time, like you said, and they're going to have been a product of a pandemic, a two-year pandemic at some of their formative age. And there are going to be benefits to the new world they live in, but there are also going to be challenges and we have to control what we can control. That makes a yes, lot of sense. And, and what you can control is how you frame all that in terms of body image, in terms of eating, in terms of this, in terms of that. And you know what, Jonah, today, unlike in 1980, when this, I was going through this and first became bulimic, we have all kinds of resources where if a parent doesn't know, they can figure it out. Hmm. There are experts in talking about parents, what to talk about, how, to, how you can frame it. And so there are resources that weren't even thought about back in my day. Yeah. But that, that being makes the a lot case in my day, going taking that hot tub time machine back, binging and purging became a natural act for me because every time I binged and purged, I had this temporary feeling of peace. And for those who don't know, I think they probably all know, is uh, binging and purging is when you binge food and then use uh, either your finger or, or whatever, a, a mechanism to purge the food. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I had a feeling of peace that the next day was going to be okay that the next day that girl would like me, the next day every, you know, I would like me. But then that feeling went away and, and swept the shame into my gut, the shame of engaging in an act that I did not have a name for, did not understand why I was doing it, but knew instinctively that guys didn't stick their finger down their throat. That was shame. But I had to have that feeling of peace again and again and again. And I was, my life as a male bulimic and life as a female bulimic, but that didn't make me feel any better about myself. I still looked in the mirror, still saw my reflection, which was a uh, fat pig. Mm. And I quickly transitioned into heavy drinking at Penn State, so I didn't have to feel at all. And one of the challenges, I think, with college is just that it's often the first time people are truly on their own and making their own way. And again, making mistakes, making good choices, making bad choices. You know, I guess I'm curious about your decision in that moment to go to law school and whether that was tied up at all in any of these other things that were going on in your life. Absolutely. Uh, I was a criminal justice major. I actually wanted to be a cop. That would have worked out real well. I'd have been the first guy in the evidence room trading out the baby laxative for the cocaine. Mm. Believe me, and I'd have yeah. been fired. But uh, right. I was sitting in the placement office at Penn State looking through these little pamphlets of police departments that are hiring. And uh, that's mm. how it was before the computer, before the, before the computer. And right. uh, there were two guys next to me and they're from Pittsburgh. I knew them in the major and they're talking about taking the LSATs. And I put down the pamphlet and I start eavesdropping on the conversation and I'm listening to everything they're saying about the process of taking the admission test and all that. And the bells start going off in my head. Things started to make perfect sense to me. And Jonah, it wasn't the perfect sense of, oh, I want to be a lawyer because I want to be, I want to emulate Atticus Finch, be the next Clarence Darrow, make a lot of money, change the world. All I heard in their conversation was law school is three years. I can stay in school three more years hmm. and I can binge and purge. I can drink. And I had also developed exercise bulimia, which is obsessive compulsive exercise for the primary 
purpose of offsetting calories. I was running up to 20 miles a day and now posturing myself as a potential marathoner to justify it to myself. And so I'm engaging in all these behaviors, a lot of stress on my body, and it made perfect sense to me for those reasons and those reasons only to go to hmm. law school. Because if I stayed in school three more years, I could hold on to my Snoopy's Linus security blanket of dysfunctional behaviors, but in my mind, they were functional in the, the sense that they allowed me to survive moment to moment, day to day, and no one would take them away from me for at least the next three years. That's why mm. I went to law school. And wow. you think that's, and people, your listeners may say, what, what, what the hell, what, that, that, come on. You, I talk to law students all the time, and not those reasons, gonna ask okay? You. Maybe not those exact reasons, but uh, my parent, my, all my parents are my parents are lawyers. Everyone's a lawyer. I have to go. I don't want to be here. I'm a first generation. I felt pressure to achieve. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here for this reason. Not everyone, obviously. I talk. Sure. Most students want to be there and want to enjoy the law and want to advance. But I talk to students who don't want to be there and are experiencing anxiety because they don't want to be there, depression because they don't want to be there, have tipped over into problem drinking because they don't want to be there or uh, or substance use. So it's not unheard of. Yeah. And, and as someone who teaches in a law school, you know, I, I'm sure I hear less of it because people don't want to come to me as a professor. But I have heard a lot of people who say, you know, at best, I don't know why I'm here. Right, and at worst, right. right. And at worst, I don't really want to be here. I guess the question then in response, and I will say, and I know, you know, you've, you've participated in this at your alma mater at Pitt Law, and I know law schools across the country are more taking mental health and substance abuse much more seriously. What can we in law schools do better to support our students? Uh, I think every law school should have a wellness committee. Every law school that consists of, uh, you, can have, you should have a student wellness committee. And every law school has people in recovery. And there's going to be at least one person who's willing to talk about it. Hmm. I feel comfortable in saying, no matter how many law schools there are, there's going to be at least one person in recovery and willing to put themselves out there. But a student wellness committee consisting of all three years, you can have a faculty, you could have an administration wellness committee uh, consist of, uh, consisting of uh, professors, consisting of obviously the dean of uh, student affairs, who tends mm -hmm. to be the first person, you know, right. to hear those, to hear these things, but when it's gotten really bad, usually. So you could uh, have a, uh, somebody for whose uh, diversity because diverse student populations experience uh, stigma differently, right? So uh, wh whatever that diversity means in terms sure. of ethnicity, wherever you're from and things like that. But that's a problem too. Uh, diverse students do experience stigma differently. And so we can put together all of these stakeholders and I think that's a good start. And one mm -hmm. of the problems I see and I've spoken at and I've connected with law schools who do it great and they're progressive and they're putting themselves out there. And I've connected with law schools who from the top down, I mean, the dean doesn't care. You know, and then you have the dean of students, maybe probably does care. But when the dean doesn't care, uh, right. how much power do you have right, yeah. to make change, get budget, make these things mm -hmm. happen? So there, I see all these kind of conflicts. And I'm not going to call law schools out, but it really, it's top down. If the dean doesn't care, that makes it tough. And the dean may be someone who thinks addiction is a choice. A dean may have, you know, when you when you were going top down, especially in private law schools, when you were going, because public law schools tend to have a broader view, especially when the, the school at large, right, when you're part of a larger school has a broader view of mental health. Right. So, so but especially in private law schools, I've seen there, if the, from the top down, if the dean believe, you know, that, excuse my language, that people are using are junkies and this and that and has all these antiquated views. That makes it tough for maybe a progressive dean of student, a dean of student affairs to make change. So how do we get all the stakeholders to the same place can be difficult. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And, and you may have professors, right, who are the first line of the, who are the, they see them every day who believe that. Mm -hmm. Pull it up by the bootstraps. Uh, you know, when I was in law school, we, you know, carry hot potatoes to get here and we work 50 hours a day. Pull yourself up. You have that as well. They, uh, there are professors yeah. who I'm sure have no interest in this. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And I think, I think where you started of having people talk about it so that you can have the conversation so that we can 
sort of lower, lower the stakes is not the right term, but maybe lower the stigma so that we can actually have the conversation and get the right people in the room. Yeah. That's a really important step for our students. Absolutely. And it starts, it all starts with students, right? It starts with one student. And, uh, and I think we're starting to see that movement and we have been over the last couple of years, not a long time, but, uh, where students are more willing, especially if they came from a school that has recovery resources in college and they have been recovering out loud. So you have students who are willing to do that in law school as well. And I'm always just so gratified when I see that. Hmm. And I guess my other question is we know, right, that you don't have to look far for statistics about how the legal profession is one of the worst, or maybe not, maybe not the worst, but one of the worst in terms of mental health issues, substance abuse problems, and it starts in law school and it continues into practice. You know, I'd be very, very gratified if you could talk a little bit about your time sort of entering practice, but also maybe what we're, what we're doing better now in practice too. Sure. I mean, my time entering the, I entered the practice of law and I failed the bar exam three times, uh, all related to drugs and alcohol. Uh, the first time I took the Texas bar exam, I did take PA before I left Pennsylvania and passed, but I've never practiced in uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, my study aids for the Texas bar exam the first time were, uh, three and a half ounces of cocaine, a fifth of Jack Daniels, a liter of tab, and Barbary books I'd borrowed that weekend. So uh, I obviously failed, but I entered the practice yeah. of law worth no one having reached out to me, also having been to jail for, uh, for DWI, uh, where lawyers' assistance programs were very new, uh, so I didn't even know they existed, as an alcoholic, as a, uh, addicted to cocaine, suffering from major depress- uh, depressive episodes, not quite the a resume for big law, hanging out a successful shingle, or doing anything successfully. I'm not a big fan of the term high-functioning lawyer. I view it as kind of the Peter principle of addiction. Uh, you may be able to function at some level, but as things progress, that uh, the level of incompetence is going to keep shrinking on what lawyers tend to do, because we don't want to get help. Law students, too, is we keep kneeling under it. We keep kneeling <laughs> under that level of incompetence, right? to uh, tell ourselves that we're high functioning. And so uh, I did whatever I had to do. I became a plaintiff's lawyer after uh, I was a claims adjuster for a while while I tried to pass the bar. Right. But, uh, you know, I was unethical. I solicited clients. Did I know I did cocaine in the state courthouse, the federal courthouse? Whoa, man, don't you know you can go to prison for that? Yes. Yes, I had it. I was I was suffering from addiction. I wasn't stupid. Hmm. Uh but what's the definition of addiction, Jonah? Obsessive compulsive drug seeking behavior in the face of known improbable consequences. Of course I knew it was I could get in trouble, but hmm. I couldn't stop. And those kind of things get around, right? Uh, and I eventually lost all my clients. And you know, I think that's one of the hardest things for people who are in the profession or teach law students is we think if what we see from the outside is, you know, maybe they're not maybe something's not exactly right, but they're, they're doing their job and they're working hard and they might just seem a little frantic. How do you recommend people from the outside try to help others in those moments? This is a multi-layered question, obviously, because if you see misconduct, sure. that's a different thing than you're just worried right. about someone, right? That incurs different you know, ethical statutory responsibilities. But uh, let's just assume that there's no misconduct that you've seen. You're out there, whether it's a law, a law student, you have to worry about misconduct from a, a practicing level, but uh, you're just, something's not right. It's uncomfortable, Jonah. It's uncomfortable to step out. You, you have to step outside of your comfort zone. Right. But I think you can do that and practice something that we do every day anyways with our family, with our loved ones, maybe with our friends. You can practice, use the two-ask rule. And one is this starts with, are you okay? I mean, you know, you okay. It doesn't mean you're accusing them of taking a drink or doing a snort or anything. It's a, just step outside and say, are you okay? And then before that conversation breaks, say, do you, if, do you know that if you ever want to talk, you can come to me? And that's, I call that the two ask rule. And all, what you've done is kind of become a cog in a continuum of potential wellness where they may say, I'm fine. Thank you. It's just a bad day. It might be just a bad day. You know, maybe... Mm-hmm. You know, something with their pet or their parents at home, whatever. But uh, if it's not, what you've done is become the first cog. And if some, the next person asks, oh, I'm fine. The third person does it. Yeah, I'm ready. Yes. Huh. And if you're the, as the first person using the 2S rule, you may have uh, 
you, you, you were responsible for starting it and putting them on the path. We do it all the time anyways. Are you okay? But when you're, right. when it's, you know, when it's in the law school or in the colleague you may not know too well in the courtroom or in the law firm, it becomes uncomfortable, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. You have to be willing to step yeah. outside of that zone. And here's the rub. It can't be performance art. You have to mean it. Hmm. And do you think some of this is the product of a profession that from the moment you walk into a law school has sort of a dog-eat-dog, adversarial, zero-sum game kind of challenge? Is that part of is it just is that what's fueling this to some degree uh, that it's I mean, I don't like to say fueling it as a trigger. Is it part of it? I think so. Yes. Is it fueling yeah. it? We could talk about vi- countless variables, right? Right. But uh, sure, as lawyers, what, one of the things about recovery and is that it's difficult to recover if you can't allow yourself to be vulnerable about what you're going through in a safe setting. In a safe setting. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about standing up in the student lounge or in the courtroom and screaming it. Right. Street corners. But and what are we as lawyers? We're, we're not good at being vulnerable as a generalization. We are so, you know, we are uh, educationalized, right? I'll use my, create that word, starting in law Love school it. to take advantage of vulnerability in the adversarial process, right? Mm-hmm. To use that, it is a, to, we view it as weakness and, and not as strength. To, vulnerability and recovery is a strength. So sure, when vulnerability is stereotyped as weak, that is a problem. And that can keep a lawyer or a law student from taking that first step. You decide to just kick the can. I call it the kick the can syndrome. I'm going to kick the can to my second year in law school. I'm going to kick the can past the uh, board of law examiners application. I'm going to kick the can in the practice of law. In the meantime, you haven't sought any help. It just keeps getting worse. Finally, you're kicking the can into misconduct and a grievance complaint. Or even worse, you kick the can into the highway where you've wiped out a family. Hmm. Wow. I think that makes so much sense and is so powerful. So sure. I think that is an issue within the legal profession. And that takes time to undo. And it takes time. I won't say undo because having an edge is good, right? Right. Having an edge is a good thing as a lawyer and as a litigator, whatever area you're in. But we can soften the way we have put it out there in terms of just blood, dog, eat dog, no vulnerability, yeah, and it's why I'm I'm so inspired by people like you who are out there talking about it to sort of say that this is going on and it's going on. It, it, you know, you may not know who in the courthouse this is going on to, but if you look at the pages, you'll figure out who it is too late. And so it's so important to to make this front brain and and part of what it means to be part of a profession and of a community of lawyers. Don't be a page in the back of your bar journal. I tried like hell to be on yeah. that. And, uh, you know, but, but right. you know, it's, I'm being tug and cheek, obviously, but it's a real yeah. problem. Uh, that, that's mm-hmm. bad. But, yeah. uh, again, addiction is, uh, sometimes you just, you keep going and, uh, you can't stop just like me. That's why it's addiction. We also have to remember that there are generational aspects here, right? Uh, whether it's the name partner at your big law firm, your AM law, or at the medium sized firm, where it's, we have a huge problem because that tends to be more top down. Uh, right. in the way the uh, name partners, the masthead people view addiction, right? Because you don't have the human resources and the wellness and this and that. And the profit right. margin's tighter. So right. people may right. look at it differently. Or in the solo practice where you may be socially isolated from all of the uh, resources available or just feel just shameful in reaching out or, or not mm-hmm. know how. I've talked to uh, solo practitioners who have no idea what their uh, lawyer, local lawyer's assistance program does or even how to get a hold of them, despite all the outreach they do. Right. Uh, I'm always right. shocked right. when I hear that, but I've, of course, I'm shocked from my little bubble of wellness warriors where everyone, right. I think everyone knows. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, the, yeah. their last contact with the LAP may have been in law school when they came in. Right. It's a really good point that even if we're out there saying that, that these assistance pieces are there, if you're not listening or you're not in that moment to listen, once you're there, you need you need to be directed to the right place. I'd love to talk a little bit about your path to recovery or to long-term recovery, um, especially given sort of the 15th anniversary just recently passing, this being right after we're interviewing on Easter Monday, two Jewish guys using Easter Monday as the, as the demarcation. But, um, but yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit about that, how that came about. Easter weekend, 2007, after all this other crap had happened to me, I had been out all night when my, uh, my living girlfriend, now my wife, she stood by me, 
Amanda uh, went away for the weekend and she didn't know anything about my issues. And I thought I could hide them from her, you know, hmm. drugs and alcohol. I had a JD, but I had a PhD in hiding, you know, these issues from people, even after everything that had happened. I thought I went out thinking I could do blow and drink and be all cleaned up by the time she got home, by the time she got back. And it didn't work out that way. I ended up having a two day blackout. And she came home and I was in bed and it was midday and she's looking down at me. I woke up and she's looking at me and I'm trying to figure out what day it is. And there's cocaine on the dresser, there's alcohol, and I'd slept through the Sunday. I'd blacked out mm. through the Sunday and had no idea where those two days had gone. So that was my, uh, she drove me back to a psychiatric hospital here in Dallas. And we're standing in that parking lot waiting for intake for the second time in my life. And she didn't know I'd been the first time. That was kind of a surprise to her, too. Mm. And three things occurred to me in that parking lot. One, there wouldn't be a third trip back. I'd be dead. Two, she was going to leave me. I'd leave me. Uh, she didn't. She stood by me, and we dated for over a decade while I rebuilt the broken trust and have now been together over 16 years. So not all relationships mm. will survive it, but ours was able to because she was a wonderful person and uh, because I did the work for me. Right? You can't, mm. I couldn't recover for anyone else. It had to be for me. Because people do leave, parents pass, pets die. And I thought about something my father said to us growing up in Pittsburgh, PA. My father, who was the middle of three boys like me, who was a greatest generation veteran of the Pacific, fought in Okinawa. He and his older brother had a what's known as a trim shop in Pittsburgh, PA, where they reupholster car seats, put on convertible tops in the same spot for over 40 years. He's, he said, guys, Mark, Jeff, Brian, wherever you go in life, no matter what happens, pick up the phone and tell your brother you love him. Pick up the phone and call your brother. Make sure he's okay. My father was passing down the gift of family that his parents had passed to him and the gift that he had with his brothers. And if you want to know how that gift was passed down, all these decades later, 1,200 miles from Pittsburgh, PA in Dallas, Texas, Mark, Jeff, and I live walking distance to each other. And until my father passed away three and a half years ago, he lived across the street from me. And I realized I was on the precipice of losing that gift, not losing my brother's love, because of course they love me, but family grows frustrated. They've been trying and they distance. And I was distancing to the people who uh, only uh, who, who love me and at least until the cocaine ran out, just the people I use drugs with. And I didn't want to lose my family. And I decided I was ready at that moment. Why not in July of 2005, when my brothers came into my house and had a 45 automatic on my nightstand? I don't know. If we could figure that out, we'd win the Nobel Peace Prize, right, for addiction, for mental health. But uh, I was ready. So the next day, I uh, began getting vulnerable for the first time in my life, now in my 40s, with my psychiatrist, who I'd been lying to for two years, just getting meds while I'm also doing blow and drinking. That works out well. And well, why would you lie to your psychiatrist? I get asked that. You're paying the person. Privilege, right? I admit I have privilege. I have privilege on multiple levels, skin color and many other things. And uh, I would be disingenuous not to acknowledge that. And well, why would you lie? Shame knows no hourly rate. I was ashamed. But I finally started getting honest and I wouldn't go to, I refused to go to residential treatment because I was just refused. <laughs> but I did uh, enter the rooms of 12 step for the first time. Uh, that day. And for those who don't know what 12-step is, it, the most well-known is AA for alcohol focus, but there are other ones. And I began my journey in the rooms of 12-step while also staying in uh, really now true counseling and therapy, dealing with healing the trauma of my past and healing that little boy who felt unloved and dragged the trauma around with him in a little suitcase his entire life, you know, on a, uh, on a giant tractor trailer tire, pulling him over a, a gravel road, uh, and never telling him he was loved and it wasn't his fault. And uh, I began that journey of telling that little boy he was loved. And I began the journey of 12-step. And I began the journey of exploring my childhood, exploring my trauma in a safe setting. And uh, that's how I got you know, a large re in uh, my family. I'm very close with my family, which is another privilege. I talk to a lot of people who have estranged families. Um, yeah. You know, they don't talk to their brothers. They don't talk to their parents. They're middle of a divorce. So that's a privilege too. And I feel very privileged to have that my father passed down that gift and my brother still live walking distance from me. And you know, my wife, I have my pets and I do all the things I need to do to stay on the beam 
moving forward, especially in pandemic times as we're coming out of it. But yeah, when, uh, you know, we are more socially isolated and we know from a recent survey that came out of the DC bar and the California bar, that things have gotten worse for us during the pandemic, especially for the fem- female lawyers. Hmm. So before I ask my last question, which is always for a piece of advice, although you've given a lot, I do want to talk a little bit about writing. You seem to have found writing in the last few years. And I'm just curious about what that experience has been like writing. And now you most recently have a new a novel, which is a little bit of a different genre of writing than you've done in the past. I'd love, as a writing professor, I'd just love to hear about what brought you to writing and, and how that's been going. Sure. This, it started back in 2012 when I began writing Shattered Image, which was a cathartic healing experience for me more than my attempt to explain body image and eating disorders or body dysmorphic disorder to the world. It was more me uh, just kind of getting all my pain and shame out there to heal because many of the things I talked about in Shattered Image, I had never told anyone in my family about my struggles with bulimia and eating disorders and the bullying and all of that stuff. So it was kind of a safe space for me to talk about it without having to risk, uh, you know, projecting out the awful response that I thought I would get that didn't come. Uh, Mm. It was only love and support. And so that was the journey that began the journey. And I realized that writing was for me. I never Hmm. knew what was for me my entire life because uh, I was always either recovering from a hangover or using cocaine or a fog. A decade, I I was going just surviving second to second in a decades-long fog of hopelessness. And as that fog began to lift, I started to explore my creative side. I didn't want to be a lawyer. I had all this emotion and trauma and pain I wanted to get out, uh, first just for me, but then for others. And then as I realized that uh, there is something shareable about what I've been through, as I wrote Shattered Image and I heard for people, especially males who had struggled with eating disorders and body image who had never told anyone, uh, because Shattered Image got a lot of attention partly because of my last name and because I was a male uh, talking about these things. and so. I decided my next venture would be uh, talking about what I'd experienced as a lawyer because, again, I knew at having gone through all these things at a time when no one was talking about it, that there was a lot of stigma, a lot of shame for lawyers. We weren't seeking help as a profession. When I got my DWI, this was 1990, I went to the partner at the firm I was working at and he said, just get a lawyer. He didn't try to help me. And, my, and even my brothers, just get a lawyer. <laughs> Because, I mean, you're just not talking. It's hard. They're trying to understand it as well. Everyone right. I talked to, and I was so ashamed. I thought my career as a lawyer was over for getting a DWI. And so I decided to explore that. So I wrote The Addicted Lawyer, Tales of the Bars, Booze, Blow, and Redemption, and, uh, which has become kind of popular in law schools and within the legal profession. And so just it was a few years ago. I wanted to keep going. I just love writing. I love, I, lo- I love sharing and I love talking about, you know, the inner workings of pain and trauma. But how many times can you tell your own story? Right. And I was having this reoccurring dream. It's a very dark reoccurring dream where gro- I was growing up in Pittsburgh and I was with a childhood friend and we were throwing these bodies into a bonfire in this open field next to my house in Pittsburgh. And we're watching these bodies burn, and they're not dead. They're staring back at us with these cracked eight-ball eyes. And then the dream fast-forwards to adulthood, where I'm all shook up, and I'm all nervous, wondering why I haven't been arrested for these murders. And I wake up disoriented. And I was having this dream fairly regularly. And, of course, I still explore explore it in therapy, and you think about it, and I'm out for a run and trying to dissect this dream when it just occurs to me. Old bodies coming back to the present, uh, old murder, lawyer, childhood friend. Okay, there's a plot here. That's it. That is how it works. There's a plot here, and I've been thinking about fiction. And Mm -hmm. that that was the core genesis of The Ambulance Chaser. Mm -hmm. Now, it went through quite a few ideations in manuscript before it got to its current Sure. You know, its current release, which is a Pittsburgh lawyer being accused of the murder of a childhood friend, a high school classmate and being uh, and having to go on the run to find the one person who can prove his innocence and save the life of his abducted son. 
but it all started with that dream. Hmm. Wow. Well, look, I like to end all my interviews and, and Brian, this has been, you're, you're incredibly generous sharing these stories of your personal life. And I don't want, I, I don't want anybody listening to forget how hard it is to share. And I know you do this now partially for a living and, and do this a lot, but it really is, is, is inspiring to me. I'm wondering if you'd give a piece of advice to somebody who feels like they might be on the path to struggling, not on the path to redemption, but on, on the path to struggling where they haven't figured things out yet. And there are parts of their, there are parts of them that they don't like, or there are things that they're not doing, whether that's a law student or a junior lawyer what do you encourage them to do to sort of change trajectories or paths if they can? What I encourage them to do is, without even thinking about taking a step, find someone who cares about you, right? We have so many different resources nowadays for people who are struggling that you can reach out and remain completely anonymous if you, if you are that worried. And in the legal profession in law school, I get it. Believe yeah, me, I get it, the stigma of uh, character and fitness. I I want mm-hmm. my partner if it gets out. But there are so many things that can be done anonymously nowadays. If you're in, if you're in law school, uh, and again, this is going to vary by school, whatever the culture is, but your dean of student affairs is not going to rat you mm-hmm. out. He or she is not, or they, is not going to rat you out. Take that first step. You want to do, don't want to do that. Uh, and I know in, in law school, it can be a bear to get an appointment with a counselor. You may not even have insurance. And if you do, there's a waiting list a mile long. Find another student in recovery. They're there. They're there. Believe me, someone's there. And, and, and talk to them. Find Just find that one person where you can talk to because all it starts with one conversation. And, and I want to tell you something else. Kicking in the can, the kick the can syndrome may seem logical now, but it doesn't get any better. And that's not a scared straight lecture. That's just a fact. That is just a fact. And and you may decide, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about and kick the can and, and you're going to kick that can into the practice of law because you just don't want anyone to know. And Okay, but uh, your dean of students is there to give you options. And again, it's going to depend on the culture of the school, but that's one. Find a, uh, find a student. Is there a professor who's progressive? Somebody out there, no one is just, students talk. You know who is really in tune? to all of these things is the librarians, the law librarians, because they hear everything, Mm -hmm. right? And so the people you least expect might be the people with the most answers for you, the best advice. Wow. Look, thank you, Brian, so much for this. Um, I will post some links in the show notes. Um, One of the things that I'll absolutely post is your commencement speech at Pitt, which is on YouTube and fantastic, and where you talk about the to ask rule, which is something that I'm going to share with my students and I'll post your website. And yeah, it's been really great chatting. So thanks so much for for doing this. Thanks for having me, Jonah. Appreciate it. Again, I'm Jonah Perlin, and this is the How I Lawyer podcast. Thanks to podcast sponsor Law Pods for their expert editing. If you're a lawyer considering starting your own podcast, definitely check them out at lawpods.com. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you'll consider sharing it with friends and colleagues or on social media. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please sign up for the email list at howilawyer.com or subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, if you have comments, suggestions, or ideas for the show, please reach out to me at howilawyer at gmail.com or at Jonah Perlin on Twitter. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.